Good morning, everyone. Uh, the scriptures record a moment when the Apostle Paul uh, walked around the city of Athens and he inspected the various false gods, the idols that dominated that culture's thinking. Every society worships something. If the idols of our culture were as visible as the ones in Athens, we would see that our main god is power. Power is the principle that governs how we think and act in our society. Look behind contemporary feminism and you will find the worship of power. Or consider the ideologies that lie behind the current debate over racism in the United States. These ideologies tell us that our lives make sense once we accept the idea of a binary struggle between an oppressed people and the oppressor. So the complex issue of racial justice is reduced to a power struggle between oppressed black people and an oppressive white heteropatriarchy. Now, in one sense, that's exactly what we should expect to find. It's often been said that we live in a post-truth world. The idea of objective truth has been jettisoned, and so nowadays truth is just a strong inner conviction within the heart of an individual. But think what happens to a society which rejects truth. In a world without truth, all you're left with is power. In the first four chapters of, the, of his gospel, Matthew presents to us Jesus Christ as the real authority in the universe. He is the true king. But the really strange thing about the Lord Jesus is that he doesn't rule by power. He doesn't establish a political kingdom by winning a power struggle or even by consensus building. He establishes his kingdom by teaching, by building truth into people's hearts. He transforms them, changing them into willing citizens of his kingdom. Chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew's Gospel record what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And here we get to hear the King teach truth. It is our privilege over these next six weeks to study these chapters together. The early verses of chapter 5 set the scene. We can imagine Jesus in the centre of this gathering and around him sit his disciples. And around them stood a crowd of unbelievers. And that scene of two concentric circles around Christ provides us with an important lesson. The Lord is speaking truth to us here, not to the world around us. So we don't get to sit back and say, I hope this does you good uh, to the non-Christian. Our job is to obey the truth that we are taught, live it out, so that our own society experiences truth incarnated in our daily lives. In this first study, we will consider the first 16 verses of chapter 5 together. Uh, I'd be grateful if you kept the text open in front of you as we move through it. But we will begin with a bit of an overview of the entire sermon. For my breakfast this morning, I ate two slices of toast and a cup of coffee. Now, I could have looked at the toast on the plate in one of two ways. According to one view, I could see it as a product of my own work. I paid for the bread and the butter, but that is a shallow analysis. Just think how hard God had to work to put toast on my plate. I'm not just talking about his creatorial genius in designing the DNA of wheat plants. For all of last year, he had to keep the sun working and stable. He used the big heavy planets in our solar system to protect the earth from asteroids. He maintained the weather system, giving just the right balance of rain and sunshine for the wheat to grow. He worked quietly behind the scenes, keeping society stable and ordered so that farmers and bakers and retailers could go about their daily lives. 
He even cared for the cows whose milk was used to produce the butter I spread on my toast. My point here is that God works tirelessly in the background to give us things that we nearly always take for granted. In this sermon, the Lord Jesus is determined to reconnect us to his Father in heaven. So he teaches us to pray, Father, give us this day our daily bread. He wants us to break out of a materialistic worldview and start to see life as a blessing from a generous, loving creator. The Old Testament talks about another king who was a teacher. This king wrote a cynical piece of literature called the Book of Ecclesiastes. He describes the universe as a closed physical system. His description is a brilliant depiction of what today we call materialism. Everything reduces to a meaningless cycle of nature. The teacher says, The sun rises and the sun goes down, and hastens to the place where it rises. All things are full of weariness, and a man cannot utter it. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. One of the main purposes of the Sermon on the Mount is to shatter that false idea. We have a Father in heaven, says the Lord Jesus. Open your eyes and see that behind the processes of nature, there is this big-hearted, benevolent, generous Father. A Father who works tirelessly for our good. His character is morally perfect. It is beautiful. I don't know about you, but one of the most difficult things in life is to work hard for someone who takes you for granted. Someone who never even thinks to thank you, to express gratitude. Well, says Jesus, our Father in heaven makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. In other words, he doesn't just work hard for people who love him and who are grateful to him. He works for billions of people who completely ignore him. They never show gratitude to him. They only take notice of him when they want to blame somebody, when things go wrong. But he still puts bread on their table every morning. What a beautiful moral character our Heavenly Father has. The second great purpose of this sermon is to transform us so that we are perfect like our Father in Heaven. And this teaching is at the heart of the Christian response to the ideologies in our society that reduce life to a power struggle between oppressed groups and a white heteropatriarchy. Lord Jesus teaches us that the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. Christianity has revolutionized the world already, but it created that transformation by working from the inside out. You won't find any grand political theories like Marxism or critical race theory in the Bible. Because the gospel works from the inside out. Don't you know, says Jesus, that what comes out of a man is what defiles him? From within out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. And the simply astonishing idea in this Sermon on the Mount is that Christ offers us heart level righteousness. He offers to transform our hearts so that we become like our Father in heaven. Instead of having a heart full of anger and lust and anxiety, we can have a heart which is morally beautiful. 
we can become men and women of integrity, loyal to others, with the capacity to love even our enemies. Instead of being mean-spirited and selfish, we can become generous and full of grace. But, you might be thinking, how could such a change be possible? I simply don't have those resources within myself to behave like that. Well, says Christ in chapter 7, Ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be open to you. Our Father knows very well that we cannot make this change using our own efforts or resources. But we can receive the spiritual resources we need when we ask him for them in faith. Now all that context helps us to make sense of the famous opening statements of the sermon, the so-called Beatitudes. There are eight great statements. They each begin with the word blessed. At a superficial level, the word blessed can mean happy. When the Lord Jesus uses the term blessed, he means something deeper, something less superficial than mere happiness. He means that God has pronounced his value upon that thing. And knowing that we have something of real value generates a sense of quiet gladness in the believer's heart. So that's how we should understand the term blessed. It's the quiet sense of gladness which comes from the knowledge that we have gained something of real value. Back in the Old Testament, we read of another mount. We call it Mount Sinai. On that mountain, God gave us the Ten Commandments. They were divided into two parts, two tablets. The first half dealt with our relationship with God, and the second half dealt with our relationship with each other. And these eight statements follow the same pattern. The first four relate to our relationship to God, and the second four deal with our relationship with other human beings. There's also a progression in the statements. It's helpful to think of them as stepping stones. But they are, of course, very strange and counterintuitive. It'll be helpful for you to follow the text as I move through these eight statements. So, where does this journey into truth begin? Well, says the Lord, let's begin by valuing those who are poor in spirit. I am poor in spirit if I have a contrite and humble spirit. I am poor in spirit if I recognize that I am spiritually bankrupt. I have nothing to offer God, nothing to plead, nothing with which to buy the favor of heaven. As the old hymn once put it, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. So if you can look at the moral beauty of the Father's heart and say to yourself, I could never be like that. I simply don't have the capacities or the resources to act as he does. Well, then you've got to the starting line. You've recognized your own spiritual poverty. That point can be applied at the level of a culture as well as to an individual. Our society will only take steps to health if it begins by acknowledging that it is spiritually bankrupt that it has reduced life to a soulless struggle for power. But we have to take another step. It's not enough to recognize that we are spiritually bankrupt. We must mourn that reality. When Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, he isn't saying that we should grin through the funeral of a loved one. He means that we should mourn and bewail our spiritual poverty. And the technical term for that mourning process is repentance. It's a deep recognition that we are sinners. Notice that repentance isn't just a recognition that we have sinned. Jesus' diagnosis goes deeper than our behavior. It goes to the roots of our identity and our nature. We are 
iniquitous. I remember an old preacher once explaining these different levels of sin. He talked about a time when as a child his mother allowed him to play in the front garden, but warned him strictly not to climb over the garden fence into the street beyond. He said, I looked over the garden fence. That was temptation. I climbed over the fence. That was the practice of sin. But iniquity? Iniquity was that dark thing inside me that wanted to go over the fence, that wanted to break the rule. To repent, we must stand in the light of God's character and admit to him and to ourselves that we are iniquitous and full of sinful practice. Now that is a tough diagnosis and it has caused many people to walk away from the sermon at verse 4. Another group will leave after verse 5 because here the Lord says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. You see, it's one thing for me to admit privately to God uh, to admit to him that I'm a miserable sinner. But it takes real meekness to allow one of you to call me a miserable sinner. But meekness is evidence that repentance was real. And the paradox is that meek people, not the boasting, insecure loudmouths, meek people really get to appreciate what life is about. They get to live in this earth and enjoy it in a way that passes by boastful and proud people. Another evidence of real repentance is what we might call a change in appetite. Some people think that Christians are people who try very hard to repress their desires and try to live uh, a life free from desire. Well, if you think that, you're confusing Christianity with Buddhism. Christianity thinks that desires are great. The important thing is to desire the right things. And every true believer is marked by a spiritual appetite. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. In other words, they really appreciate God's moral beauty. They are deeply attracted to his kindness, his generosity and truthfulness and uh, his patience and humility. And they long to be more like God. In the words of the last verse of chapter 5, they want to be perfect as their heavenly father is perfect. So that's the first half of the blessed statements. Now we turn to how a Christian treats other human beings. Real Christians enjoy being merciful. They don't get a buzz out of fantasizing about revenge. They feel dislocated when a relationship gets broken and they love to respond to an apology with a big-hearted dose of mercy. So they get to see mercy for themselves. They catch a glimpse of the cascade of mercy that flows continuously out of the divine heart. Let's move on to verse 8. Real Christians aren't hypocrites. They aren't full of guile and deceit. They're single-minded or innocent and pure-hearted. Their motives aren't corrupted by hidden agendas or political games. And people who live like this start really to appreciate God. In the language of verse 8, they get to see him. They develop an increasing appreciation of God's moral grandeur. They see his moral qualities as perhaps the most beautiful thing in their lives. It's like someone who catches a glimpse of the Alps or the Rocky Mountains. The grandeur of God fills their vision and they find it breathtaking. Real Christians are peacemakers. They love harmony and work to reconcile people whose relationships have been damaged by discord or hurt. Real Christians love to see reconciliation, not just between people, but they love to see reconciliation between men and women, men and women who make their peace with God. So the evangelist is a peacemaker. 
Mind you, the work of a peacemaker is not an easy one. Proverbs 26 verse 17 says, Like one who grabs a stray dog by the ears is someone who rushes into a quarrel, not their own. Peacemaking isn't for the faint-hearted. Usually, you end up getting bitten. When it comes to the job of establishing peace between men and God, the Christian can expect to be persecuted for the sake of Christ. But your wounds are medals of honour in the kingdom of heaven. You will have been counted worthy to suffer for the Saviour's sake. So we've done enough to see the outline of what we might call heart-level righteousness. A true believer is someone who has recognised their spiritual poverty, has mourned not only their behaviour but their nature. People like that receive comfort. I could have put that more personally. Repentant sinners receive the comforter. They receive God the Holy Spirit into their lives. And thus, new spiritual appetites start to develop. They love to show mercy and never nurse hatred or grudges. They aren't hypocrites. They love to establish harmony between people and between people and God, even if they get hurt in the process. So let's now consider the second part of the chapter, verses 13 through 16. And the Lord uses two metaphors here, salt and light. Let me just explain that bit about salt, uh, losing its saltiness before we do anything else. It's a bit of a technical thing. Apparently in ancient times, if I asked you for a pile of salt, you would give me a white-looking powder that did contain sodium chloride. But it would also contain other silicates and, and other minerals. So if I left my pile of salt outside and it rained, the sodium chloride would dissolve away, and now a white-looking powder would remain, but it would have lost its saltiness. I might as well sprinkle some road dirt over my fried egg, as the residue left after the real salt had dissolved away. There is a sharpness to salt. It has a cutting quality. And that matters. Our Lord did not say to his disciples, you are the honey of the world. Usually the Christian voice in society will run counter to the mainstream view. And that takes courage. The pressure to conform, to engage in the virtue signalling that often smothers social media platforms is intense. But our job is to be the salt of the earth. And that will usually mean that we have to say things that are unpopular and which are not on message. In the ancient world, salt was used to stop meat from going rotten. It had to be rubbed well into the meat, and then its preservative quality could get to work. We are called to be the salt of the earth, so that means we need to engage with culture. Too many churches in our tradition have withdrawn from the world. They seem to live in a parallel universe, not making any attempt to stop society from going completely rotten. So the question arises, how do we engage in society? Should we be overtly political? Well, we need to balance this teaching with an equally famous statement that the Lord Jesus made to Pontius Pilate when he said, My kingdom is not of this world, otherwise my servants would fight. Our job is not to set up heaven on earth. We should never confuse the future of society with the future of the church. So the delicate balance between being salt and light is important here. As the salt of the earth, our job is essentially defensive. We're trying to preserve good governance for as long as possible. Now, on occasion, that may require Christians to protest politically. But the Bible regards political activism as a surface issue. The real battle takes place upstream of politics in the realm of ideas. Here, the battle is between truth and lies. So we are acting as the salt of the earth when we argue graciously against our society's view of what a human being is, or its views on sexuality and gender. Uh, there have been times in the history of the church 
I have to say, when so-called Bible teachers chose to side with cultural idolatries rather than confront them. In January 1861, just before the outbreak of civil war in America, a so-called pastor called Ebenezer Warren preached a message entitled, Scripture Vindicates Slavery. There was standing room only in the church, and his sermon would make any true Christian weep with anger. At one point, Warren said, It is necessary for ministers of the gospel to teach slavery from the pulpit, as it was taught by the holy men of old. Both Christianity and slavery are from heaven. Both are blessings to humanity. Both are to be perpetuated to the end of the time. Now those words are unspeakably wicked. To utter them from a Christian pulpit is to walk the broad path that leads to destruction. In the context of the current debate over race in the United States, we need to ask, what does it mean to be the salt of the earth? At one level, we hold out the Bible's entirely positive view of ethnic diversity. I was thinking just yesterday of the ethnic slur contained in the question, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I happen to be reading Acts 22. Notice that when the risen Christ appeared to Paul, he still called himself Jesus of Nazareth. Now just think about that. The one who sits at the very pinnacle of the universe, far above all powers and authorities, still embraces an ethnicity that people look down upon. So we must call out ethnic nationalism and racism as the ugly and dehumanising evils that they are. But we must also have a counter-cultural message in this situation. We are not the honey of the world. We aren't called to join the virtue signalers of the world. We must speak truth into the issue. And here our job is to expose the underlying idolatries behind critical theory and the ideologies of neo-Marxism. Lying underneath all the talk of white supremacy and white guilt is the idolatrous worship of power. So one of our key jobs is to disentangle the real and difficult injustices faced by people of colour from the false ideologies that seek to exploit those injustices. Our Lord balances the idea of being salt with this positive idea of being light. The positive role we have is as the light of the world. We're told explicitly in verse 16 what the light metaphor means. It represents the Christian's good works, his or her behaviour, actions and reactions. So let's imagine one day you get stabbed in the back by a colleague in work. But instead of plotting revenge or descending into bitterness, the non-Christians in your office see you just get on with your job. They might even see you being helpful to the colleague who has wronged you. And in that moment, they will see a little bit of divine light shining through your personality. We can use the light metaphor to apply the Beatitudes to our real daily lives. So maybe this week, you will have the opportunity to be merciful. Instead of getting payback, instead of giving someone a well-deserved slap, you can be perfect like your Heavenly Father and just show a bit of mercy. In that moment, you're being a light to the world. Or perhaps you've fallen into the habit of political thinking. You quite enjoy a bit of plotting and scheming. Or maybe you invariably interpret the actions of fellow believers in political ways. Well, remember that the pure in heart will come to appreciate God most. So try being guileless for a week. Look for the best in other people's motivations, not the worst. And ask the Lord to break unpleasant mental habits that have built up perhaps over years. 
bring a bit of light into your relationships. And finally, you may have the opportunity to be a peacemaker. It could be in your wider family circle, or it could be in the workplace. Well, expect to get bitten. But if you can quietly nudge people toward reconciliation, then you're a bit of divine light shining into the world. So we're done for today. Our final hymn reminds us that there is a throne above this world of material stuff. We do not have to live life under the sun because we have a Father in heaven. A Father in heaven whose character is warm and gentle and benevolent. So let us turn to him now in prayer and then we shall sing before the throne of God above. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We just pause and thank you for all your goodness and kindness to us. You do so much for us that we take for granted. So we express our gratitude to the Father of lights, the giver of every good and perfect gift. Lord Jesus, we thank you for teaching us truth. In a world that idolizes power and money, we bless you for revealing this beautiful moral vision of what a human life can be. We freely admit our spiritual bankruptcy, our poverty in spirit. We repent of our iniquity and our sinful actions and we accept the legitimate strictures that others have spoken to us. Lord, we ask that you develop new appetites within us so that we hunger and thirst for righteousness. Help us this week to be merciful, innocent peacemakers. In your goodness, allow us to help others make peace with you, even if that brings hurt into our lives for a season. Transform us day by day so that we each develop true heart-level righteousness. Lord, you have called us to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We confess to you that sometimes our instinct is to withdraw, to hide away from the complex and difficult issues that bring us into tension with society. But we ask, as a fellowship, that you would use us to inject truth and love into the public square. Lord, we ask that you seal your word up in our hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.